One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is going to catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I want to know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Schulman, President and CEO of PayPal. And I'm thrilled to be here at LinkedIn's headquarters with LinkedIn CEO, Jeff Weiner. Uh, Jeff and I had known each other for a while. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff, to uh, have a chance to talk to you. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeff, although all of you probably know about him already. He came here to LinkedIn, I think it was 2008, the very end of 2008. And since then, the company's seen an incredible transformation, something like from 300 employees then to like 14,000 now. From like, I think it was like 75 million of revenues when you joined to now it's like over 5 billion. Uh, it'll be north of six and a half billion this year. Okay. <laughs> way off, way off. And something like 650 million members now yeah, from like 35 million or so. Yep. Um, so amazing growth. But what I admire most about Jeff is that he actually was a couple of years ago, the number one ranked uh, CEO on Glassdoor. Um, and he's consistently in the top 10. And I know I'm going to learn a lot from Jeff in this interview on how he practices his leadership and uh, what lessons all of us can have. So, Jeff, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, Dan. Really Thanks uh, for coming. looking forward to this. Yeah. So, um Maybe I'll start off with like your leadership style. You've um, uh, phrased uh, something that you practice called compassionate uh, leadership or management, and maybe you can talk a little bit about like how did you come up with that? What does it really mean? How do you actually practice that? I'd be curious to hear about that. Sure. Um, thank you for coming. It's a privilege to be with you. And uh, this just as easily could be me interviewing you about the extraordinary job you've done at PayPal. Oh, so very appreciative for the time. Uh, compassionate management uh, was really first uh, introduced to me, not in the context of management or business. Uh, it was through a book called The Art of Happiness, which is mm. the teachings of the Dalai Lama. And it was in that book that uh, I learned for the first time uh, the difference between empathy and compassion. And I think like a lot of mm. folks, I had used them synonymously. Yeah. And it turns out there's a key distinction between the two. Uh, empathy is feeling what another living thing feels. Compassion is putting yourself in the shoes of another person for the sake of understanding their perspective, seeing the world through their lens mm. so that you can alleviate their suffering. Empathy is a fundamental building block when it comes to compassion. And I guess another way of thinking about it is compassion is empathy plus action. Mm. And so you think about that in a work environment and it can make a huge difference and it can create a lot of value for folks when you're working with others and you inevitably experience some kind of tension or friction, yeah, of course. which happens yeah. to all of us, as yeah. you know. Uh, a natural uh, knee-jerk tendency uh, or reaction in that situation would be to assume that the other person has nefarious intention. Right. Right. Being political, <laughs> territorial, yeah. they're ignorant, they, yeah. they don't get you, 
they're trying to undermine you. I mean, yeah. so many different things yeah. would come to mind in that situation. And if they get angry and you're having an empathetic response, you'll get angry. If they're defensive, you'll be defensive. If they're insecure, you may start feeling insecure. Mm. And those things tend to escalate whatever tension exists. Yep. If, on the other hand, you can be compassionate in that moment, if you can get out of your own head, put yourself in the shoes of the other person, understand mm. where they're coming from, what may have triggered them, and recognize it's not nefarious intention, but by way of example, it could have been something you said that reminded them of a situation they experienced years ago. Yeah. Or feeling vulnerable because you know more about a subject than they do. And they're concerned about uh, feeling exposed. Yeah. Or uh, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed and they're having a bad day. I mean, it yeah. can be that yeah. simple at times. But if you can get out of your own head, stop seeing the world solely and exclusively through your lens and think about what they're experiencing, you can connect with them. Mm. And you can better understand what they're trying to accomplish. And you can work towards that end. And you can do that together. And when you do that within a company, you can create a very virtuous cycle where otherwise a vicious cycle would exist. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it's pretty evolved sort of leadership style. I mean, most people are fight or flight. Mm. It's kind of a human tendency. And you're really trying to break through that um, so you can really have a dialogue and really a dialogue that is based on kind of understanding where somebody is coming from um, so that you don't have that fight or flight, but you can but you can discuss the issue without sort of the hair on the back of their neck, you know, rising up in some way. But how do you take that? Like, you've obviously practiced this for quite some time, mm -hmm. but now you have 14,000 employees uh, at LinkedIn. How do you start to drive that down into the organization so that leaders across the organization can practice that? Yeah, uh, multiple different ways. So for starters, your point about fight or flight is spot on. Yeah. And we all have a tendency, that reptilian part of our brain exactly. has a tendency yeah. to respond to incoming situations or viscera in a way where we're not even mindful of it. And that's one of the most important parts of managing compassionately is becoming a spectator to your own thoughts, especially when you become emotional. Yeah, Stepping outside of yourself to recognize what just triggered me. Yeah. Am I angry because they're angry? Am I feeling exposed or vulnerable? Uh, did somebody just insult me or remind me of a trauma I had experienced previously? And uh, so suppressing that reptilian response, that fight or flight mechanism, and recognizing, again, where the other person's coming from, and not only where the other person's coming from, your own response mechanisms. Right. Why are you responding the way that you are? Yeah. What's triggering you? And working on that separately, uh, that's a big part of it. And so when you ask, how do you begin to cascade this throughout an organization? It starts with those building blocks that we were just talking about. So for starters, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And some people may develop uh, a meditation practice on a daily basis. Yeah. Others may just practice being in the moment or breathing through those moments where they start to experience that kind of anger. Yeah. Uh, regardless, uh, the, the cornerstone of this practice is being mindful. And again, being a spectator to your own thoughts, especially when becoming emotional. And once that happens, you can start to uh, get away from this more egocentric approach that we are, are all hardwired for. And by egocentric, I don't mean egomaniacal. Yeah, yeah. Egomaniacal is believing the is world it? revolves around you. Yeah. That's something altogether yeah, different. Exactly. <laughs> uh, egocentric <laughs> is seeing the world through your own lens. 
<laughs> and we're hardwired for that because it helps protect us and keep us safe. We draw upon our, our experiences, our perspectives, the lessons that we've learned to help avoid making the same mistake over and over again. Mm -hmm. So that comes very naturally to us. It's, it's part of who we are. And by practicing mindfulness, you can start to get away from that egocentric view. So that's uh, one of the things that we talk about is being mindful, being in the moment. Another thing that I think is absolutely essential is trying to embed this approach to being more compassionate into the culture and values of our organization. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one of our codified values, uh, one of our six values, uh, is that relationships matter. And when we talk about relationships yeah, that matter, yeah. we talk about the importance of compassion. We talk about being there for the other person. We talk about forging the connection between individuals or teams uh, and recognizing that we're on the same page, not only in terms of the mission that we're trying to accomplish, the what, but the how, yeah. the way we go about I our business. I love that value, by the way. That's a, that's a really great one. I, I actually may. You make that. You may borrow that, one. that. We talk about one team, but yeah. uh, at PayPal. But I love this idea of relationships matter because mm. they do. Yeah. Because uh, you're never going to be able to be a high performing organization if you don't really work together as as a team uh, in that. And often, I see organizations that don't do that that are very functional or siloed. Actually, the products they put out into the marketplace. Customers recognize the silos in them. Yeah, so. Conway's law. Yeah. You, you know, when you yeah, talk about exactly. um, the, the value of compassion and, and managing compassion or that relationships matter, it's really interesting because I think oftentimes people hear uh, the word compassion and they think softer skill yeah. or they think it's uh, more of a virtue. And uh, they may not recognize the value that managing compassionately can create within an organization. And I think it comes from at least three different areas. The first is that when I'm being compassionate with you, when I'm forging a connection with mm -hmm. you, I'm looking out for your interests. I'm doing what I need to do to set you up to be successful. Yeah. I'm understanding your hopes, your dreams, your fears, those vulnerabilities. I'm putting you in a role that maximizes your skills. I'm coaching you on those areas where you need to improve. Mm -hmm. And when I'm invested in your success and you can be more successful, we're all gonna be more successful. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's one. The second is that when groups of people, especially at larger scaling organizations, when you're in a meeting and you're able to resolve those uh, arguments and the friction and the conflict, it's really interesting what happens is because people start to feel like you've got their back and it starts to build trust. Mm -hmm. And when that trust is in place, it enables teams to work with shorthand and not, all, not assume nefarious intention on the, on the behalf of the other person, but you're all in it together. And when I know that your interests are aligned with my interests and I'm not constantly questioning your behavior, yeah. we can get back to the business at hand, yeah. which enables us to make better decisions faster. And I think better decisions made faster, high quality decisions made at speed is ultimately what determines the long-term value of any organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have compassion in place, if you have trust in place, I think it facilitates the way in which these organizations make higher quality decisions faster. The third is that by managing compassionately and putting myself in the shoes of others, not just my coworkers and colleagues, but customers as yeah. well, or other constituents within yeah. the company's ecosystem, you can start to ask difficult questions proactively, and that helps you to avoid unintended consequences. And what we've seen certainly within the last few years here in Silicon Valley yeah. is increasingly companies that may have thought they were doing the right thing 
and making decisions for what was in the best interest of their company and certainly not trying to harm anybody, but over time recognizing that that may have had unintended consequences yeah. and that harm may have been done. Yeah. And by being compassionate and putting yourself in the shoes of those people who are going to be impacted by your decisions, you can potentially avoid them. It's hmm. great. And I kind of, you know, I've heard about this sort of um, way that you think about how do you create action. And, you know, a lot of us have to-do lists. And, you know, I've heard that you have probably have a to-do list as well, but you also have a to-learn uh, list, which actually flows really naturally from this sort of philosophy of leadership that you have. What are some of the things that are on that to-learn list for you? Well, uh, it, it may be uh, worth spending just a brief moment on, on where that came from. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, you know, we acquired Linda, uh, it's a learning development company, uh, several years ago. Now, learning is one of our, our most important businesses. And I was uh, talking to our head of product for our learning business, and we were talking about better understanding what people want to learn and uh, potentially asking members, what are the things you most want to learn? And in the, the course of having this conversation, it occurred to me that uh, for as much as I think virtually all of us in the business world recognize the importance of ongoing learning and development, yeah. especially in a, uh, an era where so much is changing so, so quickly. quickly. Yeah, exactly. That while we all have to-do lists, and most people can offer up their to-do lists yeah. almost instantaneously, <laughs> yeah. uh, almost no one I know has a to-learn list. And it seemed like, given how important ongoing continuous education and learning is, we should all have a to-learn list. So that's, that's where it came from. Uh, on my to-learn list, I guess it depends on which part of my life we're talking about. If we're yeah. talking about uh, LinkedIn specifically, uh, I'm very interested in learning more about how opportunities are created, especially for those uh, that are underserved and underrepresented within their communities. And you talk about managing compassionately and putting yourself in the shoes of people that may not have gone to the right college or university, that may not have worked at the right companies and who have not had a chance to build out their networks. And for them, gaining access to opportunities is a very different thing than for people who already have a professional network that they can yeah. tap and leverage. Yeah. So literally putting ourselves in the shoes of those individuals to better understand how they navigate their career path how they find opportunities, how they seize those opportunities, how they then create opportunities for other people like them. Uh, that's an area that we're trying to learn a lot more about than I'm trying to learn more about. On the subject of managing compassionately, one of the interesting parts about it is I say I aspire to manage compassionately yeah. because it's never done. Yeah. Because of the way we're hardwired, because of human nature. And so for me personally, I'm always trying to learn to be more mindful yeah. and more compassionate and more patient in the right way. Too much patience and too little patience can be equally harmful sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but that optimal level of patience is something I'm always trying to, to learn more about. Yeah. I find when you're a practitioner of something, like, you know, I do martial arts, and you really um, go deep into it, you find that the deeper you get into it, the more you have to learn mm. about it. Like, <laughs> the more that you realize there's so much yet uh, to accomplish and uh, and do it's kind of it's a great humbling sort of thing and I think a great way of uh, of living you know mm. the philosophy of just always knowing you don't have it you know mastered yet there's way more that you can do um, I'm really curious um, you mentioned about underserved and um, those who don't have access that's a big driving 
part of PayPal's uh, mission as well. And I noticed in your like mission statement, you talk about, um, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you know, making sure that everyone mm. has the opportunity um, to be their best self. And, and there's really an emphasis on every. And I, I'm assuming that comes from you know, people who um, uh, may not have all the opportunities that others have, and, and you want to enable that. Can you talk a little bit? About that? Uh, that's definitely a big part of it. So it, it really starts with delineating between our mission and our vision. Our mission as an organization is to connect the world's professionals to make yeah. them more productive and successful. And when we talk about professionals in that context, uh, we're talking about knowledge workers. There's yeah. roughly 770 million knowledge workers and pre-professionals or students that aspire to be knowledge workers in the mm. world. And that's lied at the core of what LinkedIn has done historically, trying yeah. to create value for that, that core audience. Uh, several years ago, as we recognized that we were growing faster than we could have anticipated in terms of the number of connections that were being forged on LinkedIn, we started to ask ourselves what would come next. And, you know, there's still plenty of work to be done. You mentioned the 650 million yeah, yeah. members of LinkedIn. Connecting them is just the beginning, making them more productive and successful and engaging them and creating value for yeah. them. That's what we're trying to accomplish. But when we recognized that we had that 770 million number or so in our sites, we started to ask ourselves, you know, what could we do that's even bigger? And it, it comes back to our vision, which is, in your parlance, to create economic opportunity uh, for every member of mm -hmm. the global workforce, mm -hmm. all of them. It's uh, a big there, vision. There's three and a half billion yeah. people in the global workforce. Yeah. So that started as a vision. That started as what we would define as a dream or true north, and it was in place to inspire, whereas that mission statement uh, was in place to align us all yeah. on what we were trying to accomplish, measurable, realizable, and hopefully inspirational in the mission statement. When we started to ask ourselves, you know, this vision is so important, how can we operationalize it? Uh, we ended up doing just that. We ended up coming up with a plan and a roadmap and a set of priorities to operationalize the creation of economic opportunity for all three and a half billion members mm. of the global workforce. Mm. And for us, that starts with the development of the world's first economic graph. So a graph uh, in technical circles, uh, especially with regard to digital capabilities, is a fancy way of talking about mapping connections yeah. and the value yeah. that can be created by virtue of those connections. So LinkedIn historically has been a professional graph. We connect professionals. And so when we started to think about developing the world's first economic graph, we started to talk about mapping the global economy across six different dimensions. Uh, the first would be uh, having a profile for every member of the global workforce, three and a half billion individuals. Yeah. Uh, the second would be to have a profile for every company in the world. Mm. And when you include small and medium-sized businesses, there's north of 60 million companies in the yeah. world. Then we wanted to have a digital representation for every job opportunity made available by those companies that's wow. open at any given time. And there's roughly 25 million or so of those jobs that are available at any given time that are open hiring. Then we wanted to make sure that we had a digital representation for every skill required to obtain the jobs mm -hmm. offered by those mm -hmm. companies. And we want so far as to not stop at just uh, standardizing skills, but acquiring a platform that enabled us to provide the coursework. And the fifth area is to ensure that we're not the only ones providing that coursework, that every university, higher educational organization, vocational training mm -hmm. facility could also have a presence on LinkedIn to make sure people could acquire yeah. the skills to get the jobs. And then the sixth dimension is a publishing platform that enables every individual, every company, every university that's interested in sharing their professionally relevant knowledge to do so. Wow. 
then the idea is to allow intellectual capital, working capital, and human capital to flow to where it can best be leveraged. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, help lift and transform the global economy. Yeah. Wow. So what, you know, you sit on top of all of this information. I think, you know, one of my uh, LinkedIn followers asked me a question, which was, you know, Jeff sees so many of these trends, so... Uh, many of kind of like, what are the desirable skill sets? Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing? Like we talk about the world moving so quickly. Where do you see it moving? What are the skill sets that people ought to be thinking about? What's the best way of demonstrating that? Yeah. So uh, typically when I'm asked this, people would uh, believe and assume uh, that uh, advanced technology yeah. is the largest skills gap in terms of supply and demand. And uh, it's certainly an acute skills gap, yeah. uh, and it's growing and rapidly. There's not enough AI PhDs in the world to satisfy yeah. all the demand by way of example or cloud computing uh, engineers or technologists. Uh, so that's, that's a, a big gap. Uh, but the biggest gap, interestingly enough, uh, here in the U.S. and abroad, and we found it in, in regions all over the world, is on uh, softer skills, interpersonal skills, mm -hmm. and specifically communication skills. So oral communication, yeah. written communication, leadership, collaboration. And what's interesting about that is that given the rise of new technologies that have the potential to displace people from their yeah. jobs, uh, AI, yeah. uh, robotization, uh, it's going to be much harder for uh, AI and algorithms to uh, fully replace uh, the way in which human beings are capable of connecting with one another. Right. Right. So the That's work that uh, is more rote, uh, more replicatable, more scalable, uh, there's going to be displacement there. But when it comes to the way in which people connect with one another and work with one another, uh, and that's still a ways away. And so people can not only invest in themselves and those communication skills uh, that are, are going to increasingly have value over time, but those jobs are more likely mm. to be available in light of the rise of certain kinds of technology. And then the other area that it's really important for people to invest in, particularly those most likely to be displaced from their roles, is actually uh, building block technology, uh, digital fluency. Mm -hmm. So the ability to, believe it or not, send an email, use a spreadsheet, uh, put together a presentation, yeah. use a word processor. Yeah. Things that a lot of people, certainly in the technology industry, may take for granted, but on a global basis, especially when you're talking about developing economies, yeah, of course. it's really important that people have those skills, especially if they have the potential to be displaced, because what the research has shown is that if you have to reskill and learn a new skill, to the extent you have to learn multiple skills simultaneously, it becomes that much more challenging. Yeah. So if you have a strong foundation in place, it's going to be that much easier for you to learn that to new skill yeah. to acquire the new job. Yeah. Yeah. So last question, uh, Jeff. Um, I ask this of everybody who I have the uh, opportunity to uh, to talk to. Is um, as you know, I do a lot of martial arts, and uh, one of the things I always know is you can never really spar or get in a fight without some being hit yourself. And, you know, and then it's really a matter of how do you get back up and, you know, um, and I find in all of our lives, we've had places where things haven't gone as we've expected. We've had to adapt. And, you know, people might look at your career here at LinkedIn and it's been really quite remarkable. Thank you. But there have been ups and downs along that way, no doubt. 
personally or professionally. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, if you feel comfortable, an example of that, uh, if not just like how you deal with those inevitable ups and downs? Sure. So uh, one thing comes to mind uh, immediately, and um, uh, at a previous company, I had uh, had some success uh, with the role I was initially given. And uh, over time, there was a situation where a, a very challenging initiative was underway. And uh, it was uh, very difficult uh, in terms of uh, the achievement of what the company was trying to do, uh, given the competitive landscape, given that uh, there were a few years behind in terms of this emerging technology. And uh, a number of people from my team uh, joined that initiative and over time asked me to help out and uh, I was a bit resistant. I wanted to stay focused on the task at hand, uh, but then recognized that the work uh, I was currently focused on was so dependent on this new initiative mm -hmm. that uh, to make sure that the whole uh, system was successful, uh, I should probably get involved and help out. And I did so knowing that uh, it was potentially prohibitively difficult. Yeah. But I did it because it was important and it was the right thing to do. And so uh, we went after this initiative and uh, we made a lot of headway, a lot more than I think some people were expecting. Uh, but it was quite difficult and it didn't work out as well as we wanted it to work out. And the company uh, made the decision that it wasn't going to continue to invest in that area. And as I reflected on that, uh, after all of that came to fruition, uh, I just lost uh, my sense of uh, confidence, my self-confidence. Mm -hmm. yeah. And despite the fact that I had enjoyed some success prior to that, I started questioning myself. And I was questioning, was the previous success based on the situation? Or was it something that I was doing? Because yeah. I thought yeah. I was contributing to the success. Um, was the playbook that I had developed, not literally, literally yeah. but figuratively, was that playbook going to be extensible to other initiatives? Uh, and, you know, I sat down with, uh, you know, a guy that went on to become a, a mentor and a, a good friend, a guy named Fred Kaufman, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, spending time with executives at the company at that time. And I was explaining all of this. And uh, he said, you're going to emerge much stronger for this. Uh, you have absolutely nothing to be worried about whatsoever. And I remember describing it, I think Austin Powers was popular back then, and I think I described it as having lost my mojo. <laughs> and he said, uh, nothing could be further from the truth, you'll see. And I said, but that's what you're supposed to tell me in a situation like this. What else would you say? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm never going to tell you something I'm supposed to tell you. I'm only going to tell you what I believe to be true. And what I believe to be true is that by virtue of having experienced this, you're going to learn immeasurably. And you may not yeah. recognize it now, but you're going to be that much more capable of doing what you do, that much stronger. Yeah. And uh, it was in that moment, and he didn't use these words exactly, but it was certainly what I, I drew from the discussion that we should never give our power away to things we can't control. Mm. Whether it be that project at work, yeah. or that promotion that you want, yeah. or the available job that you're applying for. When we define ourselves and uh, we derive self-esteem from things that are beyond our control, you're kind of setting yourself up to be pretty unhappy. Yeah. But if you focus on those things that you can control, for example, the way you treat other people, mm -hmm. Managing compassionately, yeah. looking out for others, yeah. uh, trying to create value for those around you. Uh, that's something that people are far more in control of 
And I think that can be a source of far more sustainable happiness over time. Yeah. Jeff, um, I want to thank you for the time we spent. Um, you know, on my to learn list was <laughs> kind of just talking, and I try to learn from uh, everyone I talk to. And I think everybody who uh, just watched this is going to learn a tremendous amount. And thank you so much. No, thank you. Yeah, appreciate pleasure. it. Yeah.